Hey, it's the official tapes. This is a radio program where we play the official releases from the Grateful Dead. It's uh, coming to a radio station near you. It airs on a bunch of radio stations around the globe. Every so often we get to chat with somebody who's uh, moving and shaking in the world of the Grateful Dead. And this guy has to be one of the most educated fellas that we have uh, ever talked with. I'm Eric Malin, and I'm a senior fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics and a lecturer at our Sanford School of Public Policy. Be sure to grab a thinking cap or maybe two because we are going to get schooled. Uh, you can rest easy, though. There isn't going to be any homework assignments. I teach two to three courses a year on civic engagement and social change and on democracy and the threats to American and global democracy. I have a number of administrative responsibilities here at the university, uh, run something called Project Citizen, which works to promote citizenship amongst our undergraduates sort of do a diversity of things here at the university. I also started a course in the fall uh, teaching about the Grateful Dead for the first time in my career. And with that, let's get into the Dead at Duke here on the official tapes with Eric Malin. Well, I've been here a long time. I think I'm trusted. I probably wouldn't have done this at the beginning of my career. You know, there is a certain, and we talked about this in class, there's a certain stigma with being a deadhead. When you're starting your career, you sort of, you don't want your colleagues thinking that this is all a joke and that you're teaching about something irrelevant. So I've been here a long time, done a lot of things, and it's a time in my career where I was trusted enough that this would be a serious academic course. So it's part of a series here called What Now, which are first year seminars for students to learn about life and purpose. And so I proposed it to the director of that. And her initial response was, that's an awesome idea. And so I proposed it to a committee and it was accepted. So yeah, that was not hard at all. It's part of a seminar series here at Duke for first year students. So these were all first year students, their first semester here. And the course is called Long Strange Trip the Grateful Dead and American Cultural Change. And what I really wanted to do was do two things with the course. One is teach the students about the Grateful Dead. And secondly, to use the Grateful Dead to teach them about what I saw, see as very important things. So for example, the 1960s in the United States, but even more importantly than that for first year students, I wanted to teach them about the university and what a university like Duke with all of its resources and wealth and what does it mean to come to a place like this for four years? So I very much wanted them to learn about the university. So when it became clear to me that the dead had played here five times between 1971 and 1982, Garcia band once in 76, I thought it'd be great for the students to go to the archives, for example, and find folders on the Grateful Dead at Duke and the contracts and the writers and the letters about damage done to offices and what it was like to have deadheads strolling around the campus. I also wanted them to meet people at Duke. So I started something called a Dead Buddies program, which were folks I knew and then folks who are introduced to on campus who were deadheads. Everything from the person who runs finances at Duke Hospital to the head of the Duke University Press. And for students to get to know them, oh, what do they do at the university? And how did they get into the Grateful Dead? So they did reports on that. They also interviewed alumni who attended one of the five shows 
And so they also got to know Duke alumni. So it was really, you know, I think more than learning about the Grateful Dead was the Grateful Dead as a lens on other things. This series of seminars at Duke are limited to 18 students. I had 17, one dropped after the first or second day. Most of them had not heard of the great, they had heard of them, didn't know their music. They probably knew them through their dads who were, you know, close to my age, a little younger than me. And some knew a few songs. One of the critiques of the class in the evaluations I got was that we didn't listen to them enough. I really, I wanted it to be serious, but we did start with, and I just sat them down and we listened to Scarlet Begonias into Fire on the Mountain from Cornell. I just said, I want you to listen to this for 22 minutes. Let's start there. And they each adopted a song. So they chose a song of the Grateful Dead that they then wrote a paper on, where it came from, different versions of it, when they played it. And so that ranged in everything from Dark Star to Standing on the Moon. I realized the course was a success when one young woman in the class looked at me and said, these are a bunch of old white guys and I really don't like this music at all. I'm like, my purpose here is not to turn you on to the Grateful Dead. Like, I hope you like them. It's funny. I just was walking to lunch across campus and I saw her and she had earphones in and I said, oh, you're listening to the Grateful Dead. And she said, yeah, all the time, which was, which was sarcastic. So I don't need them to love the Grateful Dead. We did take a field trip and saw Dead and Company in Charlotte. We all took a bus in October and did that. And that was really fun and special. They did a paper and oral report on their song. They did a paper and oral report on their dead buddy. That is the person on campus they met. Somebody suggested to me those should be called Grateful Buddies and not Dead Buddies, which so next year they'll be called. I think that's better. They also had a final exam where I asked them to reflect on some major themes about counterculture. We talked a lot in the class about the Grateful Dead being something that was uniquely American. What does that mean? Are they uniquely American? And so those were the assignments. And then the other was like regular class participation. And then the other, of course, uh, which I need to mention, which probably the most exciting is they all worked on a semester long project, putting together an exhibit on the dead at Duke, the five times a Grateful Dead played at Duke. There's everything from a second edition of the poster that advertised the dead at Duke in 1973 to some letters from the student affairs folks about trying to set up the Grateful Dead concerts to, there are five QR codes. So four of them linked to the audio of the concerts and the 1982 show has a QR code that links to the video. So somebody can go to that, take their phone and check out the show. There's quotations about the shows from alumni who attended and there's articles from the Duke Chronicle, which is the student newspaper that covered that. Those are some of the things that you'd see in the exhibit, which is now hanging at, at our in our Perkins Library. There was so much interest in it that they want to do an online version of it. So I'm working with one of the students in the class to put a lot of the documents online. And so that was a major semester project that engaged them in interviewing folks, going to the archives, doing research and, and the like. If you looked at their tours, made a lot of sense for them to come through here. They play here five times. That's a lot for a Southern University. I don't know how that compares to UVA, or I can't think of a Southern University where they played more. Maybe there are, certainly out in the West, you know, Stanford and Berkeley in the 60s and 70s. But I think geographically, North Carolina, you know, is between Atlanta and D.C. And so 
And then they got too big. They couldn't play Duke any longer after 82, certainly after 87. But they kept coming through North Carolina, played uh, Greensboro frequently in 1990. They played a football stadium at North Carolina State. And when I, I used to teach at UNC Chapel Hill. And so in 19, I guess it was 92 or 93, they played at the, the Dean Smith Center, which probably holds 18 or 19,000 people. They played there three nights. So yeah, very important stop for them. And so, you know, I've lived here since 1990 and you always got to see them because they came through a lot. I learned so much and I think we even learned, you know, more than I thought. So like a couple of examples. One is how do we assess and judge a band going from sort of iconic counterculture to marketing, hot sauce, ice cream, ties, and t-shirts in Europe. And so, what does that look like? And due to the beauty of Zoom, we Zoomed in Mark Pincus, the head of Rhino Records, who controls all of the dead uh, music rights and merchandising rights. And we talked about that. We talked about drugs, and we talked about uh, what they might offer and the pitfalls. And the Grateful Dead are, a, are an incredible example of that. I also really became familiar with, you know, and I've been a deadhead for a long time, what, what I now see as the tragedy of the Grateful Dead. What I mean by that is it got too big. It got too big for Garcia. He would go to meetings and say, why can't we play small places? Not realizing that with 150 people on your payroll, you had to play stadiums and stadiums were not a particularly edifying way to deliver music. And, and I see him as such a tragic hero for the life he lived. He was quoted as saying, I want to have fun. And it stopped being fun long before 1995. And so we learned about that too, from, you know, optimistic hope to tragedy. And so, yeah, I think, I think what you can learn is almost endless in using this as a lens. I think if you had told me the day Garcia died, the scene would be so rich, so thriving, bigger than ever in some ways, bigger than ever. I think there's more Grateful Dead music to be, you go anywhere any weekend, you can see Grateful Dead music. It's remarkable. And they say everything dies, but maybe not. <laughs> maybe the Grateful Dead don't. Wouldn't that be ironic? because the life continues and this goes on, as you know, right? And, and the, 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 there are 600 Grateful Dead cover bands. There's a cover band in Tokyo. There's, you know, brown-eyed women and all women's cover band. There's obviously J-Rad and Dead and & Company and Dark Star Orchestra and Cosmic Charlie and whether Dead & Company is it or whether Phil Sun is it or it's kind of amazing. Whether it's commercialized or not, and is very commercialized now, there is a sense that it's still the counterculture. So it allows you to be both part of the mainstream and part of the counterculture. And so that somehow works. And so I think that's that's also it. Yeah, and the music is, uh, the music's the best. 